This is a Crow's Nest podcast. Welcome back to Titanic Talkline. I am Alexia because I have not changed. And um, just a little bit of housekeeping before I launch into my interview. As always, I have merch available. I have buttons. I have pins. I have stickers. If you send me an email at titanictalkline at gmail.com, we can work something out no matter where in the country you're located. And you can also find a link to my t-shirts in my link tree, which is available on all my pages. And you should totally get a t-shirt because that's lots of fun. But um, yeah. That's all that there is for me to say, and enjoy the interview. Okay. All right, well, thank you so much for joining me on this Saturday morning. I normally preamble a little bit, but I'm not going to do that because I'm too excited, so please introduce yourself to the show. Uh, I'm Steve Beadle. Uh, I am uh, the author of Down with the Old Canoe, A Cultural History of the Titanic Disaster, and I also edited a book called Titanica, the disaster of the century in poetry, song, and prose. That is awesome. And I have to say, I've, I, like many Titanic enthusiasts, have read many books. But I have to say I found yours one of the most unique and informative. Um, because I think yes, maybe I'm speaking for myself here, but I also like to do that thing where I talk about everyone else as though I'm not the only idiot in the room. But I think... For me, what I really enjoyed about your book is that I hadn't considered the cultural history or that I had, but my knowledge of it was quite limited. So it was one of those things where I had the abstract notion of things are different. And I knew some examples, but I hadn't really gone in and looked at it. Um, I think the example that comes to mind the most that I tell people is how Isidore and Ida Strauss were made, as you call it, honorary Anglo-Saxons in the wake of the sinking. Can you can you talk a little bit about that? Because that just absolutely, I put the book down for a second because I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah. So, um, you know, there was a, there was a kind of central story that was told about the Titanic disaster in its immediate aftermath, um, that, um, was, you know, essentially that, um, what the Titanic disaster proved was the inherent superiority of white Anglo-Saxon Protestants who supposedly, you know, um, enacted the law of the sea. They Mm -hmm. protected their, the, the, the heroes of the first class, the, the, the men of the first class, save their women and children, save the women and children of the other classes on the ship um, you know, in some tellings of this story, they had to beat back the immigrant hordes from down below in order to save the women and children. Um, and, uh, and and so there is this kind of ethnic racial dimension to the story, right? That right. it is Anglo-Saxons who, uh, who have a kind of unique... Um, commitment to chivalry and a unique commitment to saving the lives of those who are below them in the hierarchy 
and that in and of itself kind of proves their superiority. So, you know, it gets a little complicated when you have Jewish passengers in the first class, most notably the Strausses. And so um, they're kind of, they're kind of in, you know, as I said, they're kind of adopted as under honorary Anglo-Saxons. Obviously, yeah. uh, Jewish observers of the disaster at the time uh-huh. don't go along with that, and they make okay. them into the Jewish heroes of the of the disaster and their sheet yeah. music and 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 other tributes in in Jewish communities to the mm-hmm. to the Strausses. Um, but yeah, they are kind of uh, enlisted as honorary Anglo-Saxons. And, and their story is one of, um, because Ida, mm-hmm. it said, chose to stay with Isidore and go down with the ship. That's also put to other uses. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, the sanctity of marriage, for example, <laughs> at a time of rising divorce rates. Yep. Um, yeah, so it was things like that that I kind of turned up that were, that, that really grabbed me and, gave me the sense as a non uh, expert on, you know, far from expert on shipwrecks and <laughs> on, you know, a lot of um, what goes into the Titanic story. It gave me the sense that maybe I had something to say that hadn't really been explored before. You absolutely did because there were some things in the book that I read and I was like, Oh yeah, I remember that. Or, gosh, how terrible. But then there were some things that you just, you don't realize how bad it is until someone puts it in front of your face. Like when I was reading the section where people, I don't, I'm misquoting, I'm sure, but where people were outrightly stating like, yeah, we had to, as you said, beat back those Italian mongrels. You're just like, that was such an unnecessary addition to your sentence, man. (laughs) Yeah. And there are cartoons, um, one of which I think I reproduced in the book, Archie, but, Archie, but um, you know, with a, a gun in his hand, sort of shooting mm-hmm. down these, uh, you know, quote unquote, swarthy, um, uh, probably Italian immigrants who are trying to rush the boats. And so they were very yeah, obviously I mean, Archie, Archie Budd in particular um, kind of is is held up as because he was a a significant, you know, figure in the military and an aide to presidents. He was sort of held up at the time as the embodiment of this Anglo-Saxon manhood that stood in the way of, uh, of, of the, the, the rabble down below. It, it's interesting because <clears throat> Over the last week or so, I think 17 of my friends sent me that Washington Post article that just came out about um, Archiba and the person whose name I now can't remember because it's not nearly as funny to me. Millet? Millet? Yeah, Frank Frank Millet. Yeah, yeah. And I am not a historian, so I can't give an official opinion and be like, for sure or for not. But it reflected me back to your book where I was just thinking of, okay, this is the same debate we're sort of having I wish we weren't having it, but we're kind of having now about the Hamilton thing about who's telling the story. And it's sort of like, if the only people that have been telling the story, as your book points out 101 million times, if the only people telling the story are rich, white Christian men, we're only going to hear a rich, white Christian male story at the end of the day. 
and yeah yeah no i i a bunch of people sent that to me too i thought it was i'm sure uh, your inbox was flooded <laughs> um right I, I i what what that tells me is that there's always something new to turn up <laughs> about right. the titanic right yeah. um yeah and it it, it what what gets lost in the sort of mythic version of the disaster that spun out in 1912 in its aftermath what what gets lost often are the real people behind this you know yeah. and um i think the story about archie butt that came out you know well, i think it came out uh, a few years ago with richard davenport hines but the post mm-hmm. for some reason kind of picked it up recently is that um you know the real stories are a lot more interesting than the yeah. mythic stories in a lot of cases right uh, you know i'd i'd uh, in a way because i'd written about it in this way i sort of associated archie butt with this with the story uh, you know of what at the time was touted as his heroism in, uh, you know, in in beating back the <laughs> the steerage hordes, but um, uh, you know, uh, you read about a complicated life, and it just it just makes it a lot more interesting. Yeah, and I talked recently to Angela Harris, who is niece by marriage to one of the relations of. There are two brothers who were victims of the Titanic, the Paracchio brothers, who were um, servers in the first class a la carte restaurant. And it's just an example of two, quote unquote, little, because they weren't, you know, big millionaires, people whose entire story literally got washed away for the longest time because there was no one there to bring their flag to the podium, per se. Right. And I think um, a lot of a lot of people who are engaged with the Titanic have done amazing work mm-hmm. um, over a long period of time now in kind of recuperating the stories of those who didn't make it into the newspapers in yeah. 1912. You know, I, I, I just, I think um, the sort of genealogical research in particular that, that's exploded in the last few years is, has made that possible in ways that it wasn't when I was writing my book. Not that that was the, the focus of, of my book, but uh, really the, the press at the time, uh, the, the mainstream press had absolutely no interest in getting the stories of the third cabin yeah. passengers, absolutely no interest. So the, the, the interviews of the survivors and even the investigating committees just really gave short shrift to those stories. And so, you know, it's kind of an example of confirmation bias too, right? That right. even before there was any reliable information about what happened <laughs> that night, this myth starts this myth of of you know first first class anglo-saxon heroism is spun out and then it's kind of just confirmed by um uh 
uh, you know, by the survivors tales that the press chooses to look into and, and tell. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's been a long, you know, hundred plus year project to try to open up the story of the Titanic to other experiences and other voices. And that's great work that's being done. It is. You don't always have to open the hull of a ship to understand its stories. Like for my personal interest in Titanic has always been in the human stories of these, the individual people, which I think I've said it before. Like if I never have to learn another fact about Aster or Ismay again for the rest of my life, I'd be fine. And it's not because I think that they're ter- they're all terrible people that need to be banished to a trash heap. It's just sort of like we know so much. There have been stories told. There have been books written. There's been this and that. And there's pictures of them. And their history is safely and cozily preserved. And not to say we should forget them or anything, but it's sort of like we hear so much. It's time to start telling these other stories, the stories of people who did not get a chance to speak. Like all the women who said, yeah, I definitely saw that ship crack in half. And everyone was like, no, you did not. <laughs> right. Right. Um, no. And it, it also, one of the things that I try to point out is that, um, you know, those who are kind of challenging this, this myth at the time from various perspectives, um, including a, feminist perspective um, noted how, uh, you know, especially in the early stages, getting into a lifeboat (laughs) may have been uh, a more terrifying and brave act than, (laughs) than, than not. Right. Right. Given. um, um, And yeah, so it's, it's not as if, that myth went unchallenged at all at the time. It was significantly challenged at the time. And, um, you know, maybe because of limited resources, the immigrant press, the foreign language press in the U S or the socialist press, you know, wasn't able to do a especially thorough job of collecting the stories of those who were excluded from, uh, the sort of mainstream narrative of it, but they you know, in the absence of that, I mean, they did some of that, but in the mm-hmm. absence of that, they generated, you know, what I would say is their own counter narrative or even counter myth of where the real heroes of the Titanic were and what they did and how they acted. And, um, you know, so the, the title of my book comes from a folk song from the Carolinas sung by the Dixon brothers mm-hmm where, uh, you know, contrary to uh, Titanic generated a huge amount of music, right? Um, Sheet music in particular, um, most of which, you know, kind of uh, uh, articulates the the same mainstream story about the Titanic, but folk songs do something very different And that song in particular really grabbed me because it's really a fundamentalist Christian take on the Titanic where there's no salvation, there's no heroism, there's no, it's, it's God's judgment, right? It's God's Mm -hmm. judgment in particular on uh, 
the rich and famous of the first class who, mm-hmm. according to uh, the Dixon brothers, have kind of strayed from the path uh, of righteousness. And so it's, it, you know, I mean, in a way, it's part of a more general story about hubris, right? But it's a different kind of hubris. It's not right. kind of technological hubris. It's about the, the, the arrogance and complacency and uh, sin of uh, of those first class passengers. I mean, there's a valid, well, valid point to that. In that, in my opinion, in 2022, it's like someone tried to introduce me to the idea of an ethical billionaire, and I just kind of stared at them. It's like, <laughs> don't come around me with oxymorons at seven in the morning. But. Um, I think some of the va- the criticism is valid, but again, you know, it's not like saying, "Oh yeah, they all deserve to die that horrible, terrible death," you know, because right, right. That's... No, I mean, some of it is, some of it is, uh, it, you kind of get where it's coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah. You know the the Lead Belly, the famous Lead Belly song. Um, you know, basically, you know, celebrates the fact that. I mean, it's a made-up story, but the idea behind the song is that the heavyweight champ Jack Jack Johnson wanted to get on the Titanic and was denied passage um, because of the racist captain. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's a kind of celebration at the end because Jack Johnson wasn't on board the Titanic or, um, you know the fabulous Titanic toasts, which were kind of proto rap um, that circulated in black communities, maybe from the time of the disaster itself, you know, through, through the, through the present are about this um, stoker named shine, right. Who this black stoker named shine, who, uh, who, uh, knows what's going on and recognizes what's going on before mm-hmm. anybody else. And, you know, when the, when the, when the first class passengers realize what's going on, they kind of plead with him to save their lives. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he basically says, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saving myself. And at the end of the, you know, there are many, many versions of this toast, but the, at the end of it, you know, he's Is he just dancing a jig on the iceberg with both birds up. At yeah, the end exactly. Of the exactly. <laughs> well, you know, depending on where, where the toast is, he's, he's in New York or he's in Los Angeles, or he's, you know, and he's, he's kind of gloating over the fact that he saved himself and all of these, you know, all of the, you know, the, 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 the racist um, crew and, and captain and, 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 um, and, and first class passengers, you know, uh, pleaded with him to s- save their hides. And he just, said no way I almost so, I mean, to say- that's that's edgy and it's <laughs> yeah, that's a hot and it's, it's very edgy and it's very uh you know on one hand you're like I, I, <laughs> this sort of you know literal dancing mm-hmm. uh, over what happened it you know it, it make, makes you makes you squirm a little bit but you can definitely see where it's coming from giving given what Mm-hmm. sorts of stories about the Titanic, it was directly challenging. 
Yeah, and I think that's really important too because I I know that one of the arguments that people make when we're unearthing these stories is we're like, well, why do we need to know all this now? It doesn't really impact the narrative. Like, this is just stupid. We don't need to know that Archie Bat was gay. It doesn't matter. And you know, it's one of those things where you know, on the global scheme of things, when you look at like Titanic as a big massive entity, does it matter that X person was of Y or Z or whatever? No, but because it is a human story and we're learning, we're trying to learn about people and from people, it's important to uncover these details, at least in my opinion, to build a more perfect look at, not perfect, but just like a more wholesome look at who these people were, because they weren't angels and heroes that were like living on this ship. They were people, regular people. Right. And I, I think, um, you know, one of the one of the kind of consistently um, fascinating parts of, or one of the things that I think draws people into the Titanic story is this desire to project ourselves into it and imagine what we would have done, right? Yeah. So, um, and because it was a, because it didn't happen instantaneously, mm-hmm. it did allow for people to react and behave in a wide variety of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know, in 1912, um, that the way that people acted, uh, reacted, behaved um, in, the, in, in, in most tellings of the story um, was, you know, they acted according to who they were in a racial class and gender hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Um, so one reason why it's important to revise that and really to kind of, you know, do this hard work um, that a lot of people have done of mm-hmm. getting at more stories is is to is to complicate that and to you know, show a range of reactions and a range of behaviors. And, and, and even more importantly than that, a range of experience, life experiences before the disaster happened in right. order to fill out who was really there and, and, um, and, and, uh, you know, and, 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 and to, not make this exclusively a roster of the Ismays and Astors and Wideners and, you know, et cetera. No offense to the Ismays and the Astors and the Wideners and all of them, but I know their names. Like, look, I'm able to recite them, but I can't randomly, if someone stops me on the streets, like, quick, who's your favorite second class passenger? I'd be like, <laughs> I wouldn't know. I, 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 maybe I should find that out. But it's like it's a little embarrassing to admit that I'm like I don't really know. I, I know more about I know more crew members' names, but it's still just sort of like I don't know these stories. They're just no one was seeking them out, and it's part of untangling things. Like we're seeing it a lot here with uncovering stories. Like, there's a lot of stories that I, I was fortunate enough to know growing up. Like I, I always knew about the Tulsa Race Massacre. Mm-hmm. not that my parents were like sitting five-year-old me at the kitchen table like time for history but right. I think I watched tv I read books my parents were were are and were very liberal so I happen to know about that but now in my 30s I'm learning about more and more and more and more 
absolutely horrifying things that happened during these time periods that I remember studying in school. And I'm just sitting here thinking as an adult, like, what? What the fuck? Like, I feel like I should know these stories and not because I want to go out and set things on fire, but because it's important to understand that you can't learn anything from an, in, from an incomplete history. Yeah, and I think that's one of the, um, you know, one of the other aims of the book was um, was to challenge the idea that 1912 was the good old days, right? Yep. And um, which, you know, I'm a huge admirer of Walter Lord's A Night to Remember, and mm-hmm. I have the pleasure and honor of spending some time with him and wow. hearing him tell his story. And, and I go back to that book or, or have gone back to that book time and time again. And it's, you know, it's, it's amazing. Um, and on one hand, I kind of admire the, the, the kind of boldness of what he says at the, toward the end of the book, which is that the Titanic marked, the the end of you know an innocent (laughs) time and 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 on the other hand i don't buy that nostalgic vision of of 1912 at all and that's why i chose to start the book in the way that i do which is to kind of tell the story stories of other things that were happening at exactly the same time as the Titanic disaster and, you know, in what may strike some people as a provocative move to kind of start a book about the Titanic by writing about lynchings and by writing about labor strife and by writing about um, both suffrage protests and the, you know, incredibly strong reaction to suffragism and feminism um, in 1912, it was mm-hmm. just, you know, it's true that it's before World War One. Right, right. In that sense, it's a relatively peaceful time, but it's it's not it's not a time of uh, of <laughs> devoid of of significant conflict and significant right. strife and significant issues and and all of that feeds into how the story of the Titanic was told in 1912, right? By both those who, uh, who articulated the, 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 the kind of narrative of, um, of first class chivalry and heroism and those who challenged that narrative. It reminds me a bit of people who bring up that they long for the good old days in the South where it's like, all right, because back in the day, your family owned other people. You weren't the owned. I'm pretty sure that the people who were the owned would have a very different recap of that little time period. And it again, it reminds me a little bit of that, where it's like, it very much depends on who you're asking. If you're asking, you know, the daughter of a, of a slave owner who's rich, if her life was good, she'd probably be like, yeah. You ask her maid, and that woman might beg for death immediately. It's just, you know, it, whose narrative is being told? And if every narrative is being told by the Astors, the Guggenheims, et cetera, et cetera, they're going to have a very 
different view of the world than literally everyone else. Absolutely. And, and, um, which is, uh, which is why the, uh, the, the, um, why the nostalgic appeal of 1912 is still a little bit mystifying for me. Yeah. I mean, the, the sort of extreme version of this that I, I encountered was, you know, people who are certain that they were on the Titanic in a previous life, right? And those people are always, um, you know, I'm probably overstating the case here, but at least the ones that I'm aware of, you know, those are never the kind of Syrian immigrant They're in their past lives. They were never the Syrian immigrants in, in, in the third cabin. They were always, Dorothy Dixon, is that her name or somebody? Yeah, yeah, they were were always rich and powerful people in the, in, in the first class. And there's, I mean, that's a kind of extreme version of this, uh, of this nostalgia. It's just weird. I mean, it's just weird to be nostalgic for a more rigid class system among other things. That freaks me out. And I think that's also what freaks me out about what's happening in today's world where you have people like, Marjorie Taylor Greene running around making insane statements and having conversations with other people who are equally balloony. And it's just like, what the hell is happening? Where she, again, she's not outrightly saying she's nostalgic for an old time, but she's definitely representative of those very restrictive values. And that's sort of like, why is that appealing to you? I don't understand. Well, the whole, the whole MAGA thing, right? Make America great again is so what is that what period of time is that looking back to and what (laughs) uh, yeah well right and and they won't say it but it's that's that yeah so yeah i mean i get the appeal of nostalgia but i also um in 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 this case in the case of the titanic in particular, I think there are some, unex- I, I think being drawn to it out of a sense of nostalgia uh, uh, involves some, some unexamined assumptions about <laughs> what that imagined past that, um, that you're nostalgic for uh, mm-hmm. was and what you're, what you're excluding and what, what you're glossing over about that past. Right. It's the argument where people are like, yeah, some people, some black people have white ancestors. It's like, do you know how that happened, friend? Right. right. Wasn't a choice. Right. Right. But it's, it is, it's always curious to me where it's like, I can see being nostalgic for certain things like, oh, I wish we still dressed that way. Okay. Yeah. And that's, no, that's a good point. And that's a lot. That's definitely a lot of it. It's not, it's not really that a lot of people are, you know, nostalgic for um, (laughs) a a time where it was, uh, you know, the kind of go-to story to celebrate Anglo-Saxons and to, Mm -hmm. you know, denigrate (laughs) um, uh, uh, the, the, the 
swarthy people in the in the third class i think a lot of the nostalgia is just for the glamour of the ship and the mm-hmm. um um yeah and that's i mean that's what the cameron film does so well it sort of even though it's it's a little bit more complicated on the nostalgia issue it's <laughs> it's it's you know, it's so for so many people when that came out, it kind of you know made so vivid the luxury and the splendor of the ship and the dress and all of that. Even though ultimately it comes down on the side of you know this was an oppressive, <laughs> this was an oppressive world. Yeah, well, I think it's important to remember. I mean because it does build a lot of context into things that you just never considered, such as, you know, it's almost unfathomable unfathomable now to think that if a cruise ship was going down, we would barricade certain people in certain places. We're like, sorry, you're not human enough to go up yet. We just need to wait. You couldn't do that, but there was so much more visible divides where certain behavior was like, okay, simply because of the notions of the time. You were just able to say things. Like in your book, you even bring up that there was a sentiment for some people. It's like, it's really a shame that some of these, you know, urchins were saved when we really should have saved some of those men with money and intellect. They'll do something for this world. Yeah, exactly. And the and the idea that, right. I mean, it's amazing how explicit that is, that um, the the first the first class heroes demonstrated their heroism by saving those who were less worthy of being saved than themselves right um, I do think a, a sort of persistent object of nostalgia for some people is the sh- the chivalry right mm-hmm. that and it's not like people are using the Titanic anymore to argue against women having the right to vote, right? But they hopefully not. <laughs> hopefully not. But they, but there are people, you know, and I've I've talked to some of them who really think that um, what the Titanic said about gender is is a lesson worth preserving. That, um, yeah, that the ethos of chivalry has been lost and this would never happen again, that men would stand back to save women and children. And, um, you know, as I said, they don't take it to the conclusion that people were taking it in, in 1912, which is that this proved that women shouldn't be agitating for the right to vote because they were better off entrusting their lives to... Um, to the to the chivalry of of their natural protectors, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's still an element of that, you know, in the in the in the nostalgia for the for uh, for the chivalry that was said to be displayed on on the Titanic. I think where I'm coming down is that I'm a little pedantic, and that I think people should be a, a careful with their words. Because if you say, oh, I'm just nostalgic for that whole time, it kind of implies a lot of things. But if you say, oh, man, I really wish we still had tea time and all and men and women both wore amazing clothing and went for strolls, it would be like, you know, me too. Because that's those are things where I'm like, those are the superficialities of the of the time where it's like, 
yeah, you can want that if you want to. That's that's normal and it's fine if you're like, oh man, I wish we could go back to the days where I could pay pennies to a handmaid and she'd be with me my whole life. <laughs> it's like, no, you don't get to suppress people anymore. You don't, you don't, that's not how that happens. You actually have to pay them living wages, not a one penny and a snap pea pot at the end of the day. Like, it's not how it works anymore. <laughs> yeah. What, I, this is a random question, but what is one of the most frustrating things that you have to not defend? Cause I don't necessarily think people need to defend their work, but what is something that people just, some people just, the point got right up over their heads and you just like, I can't try to explain this to you anymore. Um, well, in, in some of the reviews when the book or one review in particular, when the book came out, mm -hmm. you know, the, 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 the reviewer said that, um, in, in effect that I, I, I think that there are only stories about the Titanic, right. That, that I, mm -hmm. I kind of, <laughs> I, I kind of, you know, uh, don't think that the somehow don't think that the ship really went down and that it really happened. Right. And, you know, I just think that that's kind of an idiotic criticism. It was a sort of criticism of postmodernism, right. That we don't think that there's a reality out there. We just think that there are, um, you know, representations of reality. And, you know, I certainly never denied in the book that the ship sank <laughs> that night and that, you know, beyond the stories that we tell something, you know, the events really happened, but what my interest was and what I tried to make clear in the book was that I am interested in how people made sense of it, how people understood mm -hmm. it. And that there are many wonderful books. There were when I wrote the book and there are even more now, many wonderful books about what happened that night and, 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 you know, in in detail beyond you know so far beyond my capacity to um to 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 remember about the lives of the passengers about every aspect of the ship itself about the various theories of uh of why the ship sank uh all of that stuff is really well documented and so it was it was never my purpose to say that uh, there are only you know there are only representations. There are only kind of, you know, um, stories, but so that was, that, that was one. I think the other that I got some of was that I was disrespectful, um, to, uh, to the Titanic, um, to, to the, because I mean, you did open your book by saying Titanic was a bitch and I'm glad she's dead. So I can see where they got that impression. <laughs> That's there, not true in case anyone cannot detect sarcasm. When, when I went uh, along with the um, the uh, expedition to the wreck in 1998, so there was a very irreverent, I mean, the, 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 there was a very irreverent crew member on one of the ships who had a t-shirt that said, the ship sank, get over it. Mm -hmm. um, I don't... <laughs> I don't agree with, I don't think we should get over it, but, uh, yeah, no, I mean, I just, I, I, I think that there were, there were people who just thought that, 
because there is some humor in the book and, and um, because there is, you know, it wasn't my central purpose to sort of debunk the myths. It was more mm-hmm. my purpose to, um, to reveal the myths and to show how those myths were challenged at the time and the work that they did at the time and, um, and, and why it was such, uh, a, a, a kind of volatile event in the way that people tried to make sense of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, debunking wasn't my purpose, but I think that some people thought that I was just, you know, kind of, um, yeah, not sufficiently respectful or, mm-hmm. or, or reverent about well, it. Um, but I hope those people plugged back into the matrix soon. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and, uh, and, the, and there were some people I think who, who thought that I was, you know, people can be both very generous um, who are deeply involved in the Titanic and some people can be very territorial. And so somebody yeah. who was avowedly not a Titanic expert and was coming at this from, a different set of interests than what probably draws most people to the Titanic disaster. I think there was a sense that I was sort of a interloper, um, but that was really limited. I mean, I, I really, you know, by and large, I think the people were very generous in how they, um, how they read the book and, um, and, uh, you know, thought that it was a new angle and a worthy angle. Uh, I agree with that. That's how I saw it. Because I'm not a historian. I was an English major. I'm not a sociologist. These are these are not my areas of expertise. I am interested in the human stories of things. So reading your book was just everything I'd wanted. It was so many human angles and stories and viewpoints about an event that I'm interested in. And you almost barely talk about the ship. Well, I mean, you talk about the ship because you're about Titanic, but you know, you're not giving us a tour of the vessel. That's not what your book is about. Your book is about the people and their sentiments and how they, how the survivors and the public reacted in a time that was super different. Like today, if you don't like what someone is saying, you can make your own podcast. You can write your own zine. You can get a blog. You can publish a book. You can literally do whatever you want, get your voice out there. You couldn't do that in 1912. If you had a story to tell and you were just like some broke woman in a cottage, which would have been me, no one is going to listen to me, even if I was eloquent, even if I had written it all up by myself, they would ask me who I got to do it. You know, there were just so many more barriers to getting a story out. I think that's true, but what's but that that's definitely true. I mean, there are many more ways of getting a story out now. And, and um, you know, although also maybe more barriers to who's going to take the time to find yeah. your story and the, the kind of glut of, 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 uh, of information out there. But, um, but one of the things that really amazed me and kind of convinced me fairly early on that this, that there was a, 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 a book in this was just how many, how many, people did manage to articulate alternative viewpoints and find venues. I mean, there was a rich 
socialist press and a rich feminist or suffragist press and there were uh you know there were foreign language newspapers in every language right and and not you know and i couldn't even begin to um engage with all of them or get people to translate all of them but i you know i was able to get a pretty good sampling so you know um once you once you see what the kind of Finnish socialist press <laughs> is saying about the Titanic, you're 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 finding that people had other ways of telling other stories about the disaster, and and it's not just in kind of printed materials, as I said, in kind of oral materials, folk music, um, poetry, toasts. Um, there's this other vein of mm-hmm. um, of uh, of of alternative voices and different tellings of the story that was, you know, not completely untapped at all when I mm-hmm. wrote the book, but that hadn't maybe been put together in quite the same way to yeah. to really tease out how the the mainstream. Uh, stories of the Titanic or how the, the, the kind of chivalric myth of the Titanic wasn't left um, uh, uh, un, unchallenged. Mm-hmm. That, is, that is a good point. I think what I was thinking of was accessibility. And, oh yeah, definitely. And that, like, right. if, you, if, I could, if I printed out a hundred issues of my newspaper, there was absolutely zero way that I could get it to China in 1912. It was just like, Absolutely. Just as an independent, like one person, be like, well, it stays on the block, I guess. Right, right. No, and it would have just, you know, I mean, I researched this book in the '90s, right, and mm-hmm. um, it would have been a much different book to research now, right? I mean, you, very little was digitized at the time, you know. I mean, just to kind of gather up these newspapers um, <laughs> and uh, and other sources meant you know, looking at microfilm, right? Yeah, I was just <laughs> talking. A, and that's a much more, that's that's a much more laborious. I probably would have finished it more quickly. I mean, I think there are there are good things about about that kind of work. Um, but I think that especially affected the chapter that I wrote about, you know, Titanic buffs. Uh, <laughs> because that, that, that chapter in particular is of its moment, right? I mean, it's, it's, these are the people that I could identify because they published journals or because they formed organizations. Right. And I think, um, first of all, I think the, 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 the Cameron movie totally blew open the world of Titanic, (laughs) Yes, um, yes, it did. <laughs> titanic uh, interest and people who um, devoted a lot of time to the Titanic. And then, you know, obviously the way that people who are interested in the Titanic can get to know each other and communicate with each other has, you know, changed completely from... <laughs> the moment that I was looking into this when essentially there was Titanic international and um, the Titanic historical society. And those were the kind of organized 
um, ways of, um, of, of being a Titanic enthusiast as the, as the Titanic historical society used to call themselves. Right. And so, um, you know, and their publications were the way that people got their research about the Titanic out into the world if they weren't able to, you know, write books themselves. So yeah, it was just a much different kind of landscape <laughs> back then. You mentioned, obviously, you said it would be different if you wrote it today, but like, if you were to not retroactively rewrite it, but if you were to like give your thoughts on, say, Titanic and social media, and how that has changed things, what do you, what do you think of all that? Because there is a lot, there is, there every color of the internet, you can find a Titanic something, a group, a, a subreddit, a hashtag. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't think I have anything very uh, lucid to say about that, except that it really has opened up the Titanic to many, many, many more perspectives. I mean, I do think mm-hmm. that the version of the Titanic that certainly the Titanic Historical Society and to some extent Titanic International, which split off from it. You know, I think on one hand, those, those were welcoming organizations um, mm-hmm. and became the way that a lot of people were able to find others who were in, shared their interest in the Titanic and offered you know, venues for people to publish their research, as I said, um, but they were also limited in a lot of ways. And I think that there were certain dominant voices in those communities and, and in who published books about the Titanic and what their interest was in the Titanic. And I absolutely think that the internet and social media have thrown that wide open for, uh, and podcasts as well, of course, have, mm-hmm. have opened up um the 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 range of voices who are able to um participate in in the discussion you know and um and just kind of proliferated different titanic communities there were basically these two titanic main mm-hmm. titanic communities out there and as you said now there are <laughs> it's all it's all over the place there's so many there is as with any community, there's gatekeeping in its own way. And that's always fascinating to me to see people having an argument about why are you posting that? Why are you even here? It's like, could you stop, please? Yeah. No, I mean, I'm sure the gatekeeping is still there. Um, wild. Uh, which is a sign of how passionate people are about it, right? There are some, that's true. there are some, uh, you know, there are some things that people want to hear about the Titanic and some things that... <laughs> People don't want to hear about the Titanic and, and, um, and, but the, you know, the, the positive side of that is that, yeah, I mean, uh, gatekeeping is never good, but, but, you know, kind of passionate adherence to views, uh, you know, is what, is what makes historical research work. Right. And, you know, as long as people are, 
willing to engage with others about about these things. Um, but that's the opposite of gatekeeping, right? Gatekeeping is no, we don't want your views or we don't want your perspective. I'm one of those people that came to Titanic via the Cameron film because at the time the movie came out, I was eight years old. So for however long that movie was in the news up until I saw it, it was just in the air. You couldn't escape it. It was on the radio, it was on TV, and it was in the papers. It was just Titanic, Titanic, Titanic. So even though I think I'd read about it in a book once, it was just all of a sudden it was like, Titanic, Titanic, what is Titanic? And then I went to go see the movie and it was colorful and vivid. And they were, you know, it was, it was beautiful. Even as a child, I was able to be like, that's a pretty movie. That's pretty. <laughs> and even I could tell, it's like, there's a lot of work that went into making that thing. I don't know how they did that, but that was impressive. And that's initially what caught my interest was because at eight years old, I was seeing a historical event being presented in a present way. These are like actors I recognize. The quality of the picture was good. It wasn't black and white. The sound wasn't hard to understand. It was all done in a modern way where it's like, I can literally see, I, I can see it, get it. And that got me into it. So I think I get a little frustrated with some of the gatekeeping because it's like, if the film hadn't come out, whether you hate it or not, about half the people who are currently into Titanic may not have become interested in Titanic simply because that door would have never opened up. Yeah. I mean, the movie was, you know, I had the, um, just the good dumb luck of having a book come out just before the movie came out. You know, there was no intention behind that at all, but, um, I've, I've sort of mixed feelings about the movie. Um, mm -hmm. I have some criticisms of it, but, um, you know, I can't complain too much about it because yeah. anything, <laughs> anything Titanic related just sort of got a boost yeah. from that. And, um, going back to what we were talking about a, a minute ago, I think mm -hmm. it, 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 it absolutely opened up the world of, um, Titanic to uh, to people who might have felt excluded before, right? Um, I think women and girls in particular um, were uh, were kind of galvanized into becoming Titanic <laughs> historians by by that in ways that they might not have been before and whether that's mm -hmm. because of Leonardo DiCaprio, you know, that's fine. Right. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's, um, uh, yeah. And I, at this point, I think it's impossible for anybody, including me who came to the Titanic before mm -hmm. the movie to sort of see the disaster yeah. without seeing it in some sense through those, stunning images from the Cameron movie. Um, and, uh, you know, I do think the movie did, it did, you know, it was the anti-night to remember in some ways, right? Because the story of Rose is a story of... Um, how oppressive things were yeah. for um, 
for a woman like her in 1912. Even a woman of privilege. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the way that she's sort of liberated is a little bit strange, I think, but the... <laughs> and most people don't have a chance to be liberated by pushing the corpse of their lover to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. I think that's a very rare one. Yeah, exactly. As he's wearing <laughs> handcuffs, it's almost like symbolism. It's just... <laughs> right, right. Uh, I hope that never happens to me. Yeah, it's not a great way to be liberated, no. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think, I think, uh, I, I, I think most of all that really did sort of open up the world of fascination with the Titanic in, in new ways. And it was, you know, and, and it hasn't stopped since then. Yeah. Part of Rose's appeal for me was that I kind of saw my, myself and her in a little way, not because I was rebellious, but because I'm neurodivergent. And it was like, I'm the kind of person that would say stuff at lunch I wouldn't even mean it spitefully, but I would have just probably said what, what she said to Ismay just because I was like, oh, Freud. But, you know, it's the same sort of thing where I'm like, I don't always fit in. I get where she's coming from. And it's it's frustrating. So I I liked that about her and that she was a little fiery where she was like, I don't want to do this. And then the guy that she was into, he wasn't negging her. He wasn't mean to her. He wasn't pretending that they didn't just spend an amazing like summer on the beach and then end up at the same school together and that he doesn't know who she is you know, he's nice to her. He wants to know what she would like. And I really enjoyed that because it was a, a younger woman making her own choices with a supportive partner, not a guy who was like, nah, babe, I got this, I got this. Yeah. Like, you're a partnership. That was a very nice thing to see in a mainstream movie, especially because yeah. all the rom-coms that came after it were, how, how much can you change for a boy? Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it helps that her fiance is you know kind of a cartoonish villain right i mean that he's just so awful that uh As portrayed wonderfully by billy zane yeah yeah his eye movements are fantastic his eyebrows <laughs> it's amazing whole thing those eyebrows are, are definitely memorable what is it's obviously been a little while since you wrote your book what is something that you've learned since then where you thought to yourself ah i would have put that in there if i do that Oh, that's a good question. Um, I'm sure there's a lot, but. Uh, well, in the first edition of the book, I think I made the statement that there were no black passengers on the Titanic. And that is not true. We subsequently, you know, pretty soon after mm -hmm. found that out. I mean, I think even though I wasn't telling the stories of passengers per se i was telling stories about the stories <laughs> of the right. passengers i think um you know i'm sure that some of the some of the information that has come out about um passengers who weren't talked about specifically at the time would have would have helped me a lot um i mean in the in the edition of the book that came out on the hundredth anniversary of the of the disaster, I was able to add an epilogue that talks about the Cameron movie. I mean, I I in the in the first edition, really right at the end of the um, process, uh, I learned that the movie was coming out. So I I think I mentioned that there was, but nobody, 
you know, what people don't remember is just the predictions of how disastrous this movie, this, you know, bloated over budget movie was. And the, the, you know, it, it, the, the success of that movie was not guaranteed. I mean, in retrospect, it seems like, of course, this was going to be a huge hit, but at the time there was just a lot of, a lot of, you know, uh, skepticism about it. Right. Um, but yeah, obviously if, if the, the book, the book would have been different in ways I can't really specifically say, um, Mm -hmm. if it had been written after the Cameron movie came out and all the other stuff that happened in that wave of Titanic mania in, in the, in the late, in the late nineties, you know, the Broadway musical and endless, endless documentaries and, you know, TV miniseries and things like that. And a kind of proliferation of other books. So I would have also, I I also, I have the miniseries. I haven't seen it yet. Uh, yeah, it's not great. (laughs) That is the impression I'm getting, but I also figure like, I watched the first few seasons of Downton Abbey, so it's like, I know what this man's about. I'm familiar with Julian Fellows. I know it's going to be overdramatic, and uh-huh. there's going to be more than one kiss as the ship goes down, yeah. is my assumption. But, yeah, it's just the fact that it came out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, so all of that would have, you know, definitely informed the book in, you know, even if I, you know, both in writing at, at length about that period um, because really the book focuses on on three periods right it focuses on 1912 Mm -hmm. and then it kind of pretty much jumps ahead to walter lord in the 1950s and the interest in the titanic in the 50s and then it jumps from there to the to ballard and the discovery of the wreck in the 80s and so you know it's really built around those those three moments with um, and so I, th- I think if we're writing it now, the nineties would have gotten its own, <laughs> you know, and trying to, I, I can't really, I would have to, you know, look much more deeply into this yeah. to account for why it was that the Titanic became such a phenomenon again. I mean, obviously the Cameron movie is a big part of that story and maybe that's just fortuitous that sure. came out in the nineties. Um, but you know, there were people at the time who were trying to speculate on why, why, why are people suddenly obsessed with the Titanic? What's going on in our world mm-hmm. in, the, in the in the late '90s to make this such an object of cultural production and um, an interest and an obsession in this moment? So, um, you know, anything that I would say about that without really digging back into it would be kind of glib, but there were people who were, you know, there were columnists at the time who were saying, you know, well, is it, you know, growing income inequality that has us interested again in this story of, or, you know, what is it about technological hubris in this particular moment? Um, that accounts for this. So, um, so I don't have an easy explanation. Um, I mean, obviously the easiest explanation is that James Cameron decided to make a movie about the Titanic and it, and it hit big and people became obsessed with the Titanic again. I would 
absolutely love it if you were to write a book on the cultural impact of that bloody film because i think that would be insanely fascinating but uh, thanks, for the, thanks for the idea <laughs> if you decide to do that i will pre-order a copy because it's great but um i also have noticed that it's been over an hour and i don't want to take up all of your saturday but um thank you so much for coming on this episode. I'm just going to fangirl a little bit. Like I read your book and immediately it was like, I want him to come to my show, but he's never going to do it. And then I talked to LA Beatles and she just was like, why don't you just send me an email? I was like, no, I can't. I won't. I can't. And then I sat on it for a few weeks because I brought up this book in every episode I have done so far to bring up a point in almost every conversation I have about Titanic, I'm like, in Stephen Beale's book, there's always a point I can bring up and it's always an interesting point. Like I've been telling so many people about the Isidore and Ida Strauss thing. And it has been a very fun way for people to be like, I didn't know that. And get really excited about a fact, not necessarily because it's Titanic, but because they're like, that's just a story I didn't know. So I am really honored you decided to come on. I absolutely loved your book, and I really, really encourage anyone who has even a passing interest in Titanic to pick up a copy. Well, thanks so much. I'm glad you. I'm glad you sent the email. Oh, thank you. It's uh, great to talk to you. Thank you. I'm gonna hit the stop. You guys, I absolutely have to thank Stephen for coming on the show again. I reference his book constantly, all the time, in conversation, in this podcast. I, yeah, I I'm all over with it. So. I highly encourage you to read it. The book is called Down with the Old Canoe, A Cultural History of the Titanic. And again, it is done by Stephen Beale, B-I-E-L. Highly recommend you check that out. Uh, thank you guys for listening and I'll see you in the next one. Bye. Titanic Talkline was created and produced by me, Alexia. Be sure to keep up with the show on all the social medias at Titanic Talkline on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That is all one word. Titanic Talkline, T-I-T-A-N-I-C-T-A-L-K-L-I-N-E. If you want to get in touch, be on the show, sponsor the show, or have a question or anything you want to tell me, send me an email at TitanicTalkline, again, all one word, at gmail.com. That's TitanicTalkline at gmail.com. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time. Bye!